The Civil War and Pop Culture. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War Podcast, I'll talk with my ECW colleagues John Tracy and Dan Welch about some of our favorite movies, TV shows, songs, books, and how pop culture is an important gateway into American history. Today on the Emerging Civil War Podcast. Emerging Civil War had a fantastic symposium at the beginning of August 2023, and we're already looking ahead to 2024. The 10th Annual Emerging Civil War Symposium will be held August 2nd through the 4th, 2024, at Stevenson Ridge on the edge of the Spotsylvania Courthouse Battlefield. Early bird tickets are available for $225. It'll cover all our speakers as well as our Sunday morning tour. We've got some surprises in store for you because it's our 10th anniversary and lots of exciting things. Our theme is going to be 1864, the war and the balance. We have two keynote speakers because it's our anniversary. We have Brian Steele Wills coming Friday and we've got Jonathan Noyalis coming on Saturday and we want you to come to the whole thing. Check out our page on the web website www.emergingcivilwar.com look for symposium information and you can get your early bird tickets now Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me today are two of my fabulous colleagues, John Tracy and Dan Welch. How you doing, fellas? Great. Yeah. Awesome. Dan is coming to us from the great Buckeye state of Ohio, where everything is round on the ends and high in the middle. Uh, so <laughs> I, we can say hi. Um, and uh, John's coming to us too from the breadbasket of the Confederacy, the Shenandoah Valley. So uh, hello to both of you. So we're looking forward to it. Very good. That's not the breadbasket post 64. They solved <laughs> yeah. that one. Indeed, it's not. Um, so uh, for, I mean, this is totally off topic and I didn't even think I was going to mention anything about this, but, but John, you've been doing some work in, in uh, Shenandoah National Park and you recently had, um, a, a starlight program because we had the meteor shower recently. I've got to imagine it was just a beautiful spot to be. Oh, it was, it was, it was gorgeous. You know, it, it's, it, there's, there's still some light pollution up there, right? So the modern, the modern world peaks in, but it's. It's really something to think about, you know, just uh, the, the way that people used to experience the world was very different. And and getting out into national parks and uh, especially those, you know, certified as dark sky parks, though Shenandoah isn't because of some of that encroaching light pollution, you know, getting out into those places and looking up, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's it, it, tying back to the podcast, right? You know, it's, you hear all those things all over the place and pop culture wise, you know, it's, it's central to gods and generals, right? Who, who could forget the gods and generals, uh, Fredericksburg scenes, uh, of, of the night sky at Fredericksburg. So well-documented during the war. And so, you know, poignantly represented in, in the pop culture there and, and getting out, you know, into the night sky parks is not only kind of a, a naturally beautiful thing, but sometimes, you know, you can't help but think about like, well, you know, what did, what did everybody else think about all of this stuff, you know, in their own times? Yeah. So, uh, and Dan, as, as John was talking, I noticed you took sort of a drink as a toast to the night sky. And you I, you have a Civil War glass there, don't you? Uh, what is what is left of some of my Civil War Susquecentennial beer mugs 
Uh, most of the paint is off uh, of most of them now after years of light use. Um, <laughs> but this one I've got, I've got Grant. It my yeah. one of my least used ones. So. <laughs> I had that same cup and they all were destroyed by the dishwasher. The great battle of the dishwasher, uh, battle of the whirlpool, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll clear it away. Uh, but that's maybe kind of an interesting entree into our discussion though, because like, here's, here's, you know, like glassware with pictures of these generals on them. So it's sort of this way that we're as consumers bringing the civil war into our houses with stuff, you know, painted on them, generals painted on them in this instance. And uh, so tell me about that, Dan, like here's, we, we interact with the war in all these ways that most of us maybe aren't even realizing. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think that's an interesting construct to the idea of pop culture uh, in the civil war is, you know, the, the general understanding of popular culture is something that, you know, is, is all known by the masses. Right. Um, but what we know about pop culture is that, Pop culture changes very, very quickly um, for the masses. It's, it's not a continual touchstone. But when we talk about pop culture in the Civil War, you know, we have that that duality of stuff that reaches the masses. So, for example, Ken Burns' Civil War documentary that came out, you know, on PBS, PBS. You know, I mean, that was huge for for the masses all across the country, but it didn't remain a touchstone for everyone. But it became this, you know, this storied documentary that inspired so many enthusiasts and historians within the, you know, the field of not only Civil War studies, but those that, that are interested in the topic as well. Um, so, you know, something as simple as taking a, a sip of a drink this evening out of a, a beer mug with, with Grant's face on it, you know, something that was produced for the masses of the Civil War community uh, as pop culture, not necessarily for the masses uh, of those uh, spread out across the, the modern day country. Um, so I, I, I find that very, very fascinating as to what you said, what, what those of us in the Civil War community would deem pop culture to us and what we're bringing into our own homes. You know, everything from, you know, the, the uh, gosh, the, this, this beer mug I'm drinking out of to a, a 12 inch uh, soldier right about there on my bookcase. <laughs> holding up my Confederate military histories and then fall off the top to, you know, just a whole. We, I think we can see his pants. I think we can see. His yeah. Pants. Yeah. Yeah. You got, uh, yeah, you've, you've got uh, the bottom half there, but uh, it works as a great bookend. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's really interesting what we in the civil war community have, have termed pop culture to us and what we end up um, consuming as consumers within the civil war community of popular culture. And I would agree with you. I mean, everything from, um, you know, the spear mug to that 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 12 inch figure I got there to a couple of Civil War themed shot glasses that line my my bookshelves as mementos of places that I've been to um, to, you know, music, CDs, records, uh, DVDs, um, you know, digital media. Uh, I, it really spans the gamut. Um, and I think one of the interesting parts, too, to this is that pop culture and the Civil War is nothing new. Right. So, you know, I can I can think about my father teaching me some of those um, uh, hex squared Civil War type games from Avon Hill that came out in the 50s or 60s. You know, these are things that are now, you know, 60 and 70 years old. So, you know, the transference of pop culture or Civil War into to gaming and board games and things of that. So um, it's definitely nothing new and it's constantly changing both within the 
the Civil War community and, and also the population at large. So our discussion tonight is really kind of based on a book that uh, John and I had co-edited called The Civil War and Pop Culture as part of the Emerging Civil War 10th Anniversary Series. Oh, look, John's holding up a copy. Got to say something, John, so that the, the screen goes over to you for oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Here it is. I didn't want to interrupt, but I wanted to, you know, hold it up in reversed fashion here. Now, this book has kind of an interesting origin, and um, I'll apologize to John right up front because it's like he was working on a book about Civil War monuments in memory and then discovered he was having twins because we had so much content <laughs> that we were talk talking about memory. And this happened to Dan, too, ironically. Um, yeah. Geez, I'm the father of two sets of twins. <laughs> Um, and, and as we were just kind of pulling together content for the Civil War Monuments and Memory, sort of the pop culture stuff as a form of memory, um, we've written a lot about it in the blog. And so we just decided to split that off for a, for a book. But but John, you know, we see these these two books in conversation. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, from your perspective, where this book came from and how it ties back to Civil War memory. Yeah. So, you know, we were we were looking at kind of a single volume of of ways that people remembered the war. And and that that included, you know, people who experienced the war and, and wrote about it or memorialized it. And then that included, you know, the the things that people created around the war, whether at the time, you know, during the war or after the war, again, either by participants uh, people for which it was in within lived memory, and then people decades and and you know a century later. And as we kind of put those things together, we realized that we had a whole lot in both of those categories, right? So we we put all of the we put all the monumentation stuff in in one box, and the ways in which you know a lot uh, primarily the 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 primary cast you know, remembered the war into the first volume and then the ways in which people created art and popular culture in their own ways of remembering the war, uh, whether they had experienced it firsthand or not, kind of into this into this second volume uh, that just came out, you know, a couple of weeks ago here. Now, it seems to me that uh, pop culture in particular, you know, and Dan mentioned it's it's nothing new. There's been, you know, lots of instances of popular culture's interaction with Civil War, but it, it strikes me as an as a powerful tool for not only remembering the war, but getting people interested in the war. Um, let me ask each of you to speak to that. John, I'll have you go first, but, you know, kind of talk about that role of, of these art, these, these uh, pieces of art that not only reflect but also interest people in the war yeah i i think it uh i think it would be an uncommon student of the war that says you know the first thing that got me hooked on the civil war is coddington's the gettysburg campaign or you know some other really academic text about the civil war i a lot of people get to that point and a lot of people really enjoy that uh, but that's usually that's usually not where people start. Uh, they'll start, you know, maybe on a, a family trip to a battlefield or they'll start because they heard a song or they saw a TV show or they saw a movie or they saw Ken Burns. Right. These the the popular culture touchstones, especially, you know, films and television uh, tend to have a broader audience and tend to be kind of that that gateway, that first thing you do. And then, yeah, you know, maybe you get to the the big academic books. Some people do. Not everybody does. Other people engage with the war in different ways. 
Uh, but very few people kind of jump right out of the gate with university press books, right? Uh, you you probably started somewhere else. Uh, I I sure did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan, talk to me about uh, pop culture as a gateway drug. Yeah, I think it's a very powerful gateway drug, and I, and I think one of the reasons why it's so powerful is because perhaps the most popular of all pop culture within the Civil War community is all visual or digital media, right? So the big touchstones are movies, uh, documentaries, uh, music, uh, most oftentimes soundtracks that associated these movies or documentaries. And then for a number of years, uh, Civil War paintings, you know, works like Mort Kunstler, Antrioni, and, and, and those um, in that field. Um, but, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with John that Civil War pop culture as a touchstone for many of us still within the Civil War community was almost a, a secondary reaction, that our first experience was perhaps a battlefield visit, um, perhaps a, you know, um, a, a story about ancestors around, a, you know, a family gathering, and that the the real touchstone which which supported that initial interest or engagement was pop pop culture, and that's that's for for me as well. You know, my first engagement was a trip to the Gettysburg Battlefield, um, and out of the Gettysburg Battlefield trip came you know some of those touristy type shops downtown, and you know at the ripe age of five, you know my parents purchasing a a Kepi and a toy musket, you know, the battlefield became, you know, alive for me. And then that was quickly followed by, you know, years later, you know, Glory and, you know, Ken Burns and Gettysburg and all of these, these pop culture icons within the, the field of Civil War studies. So, you know, I, I think that you have to have both. I, I think you won't ensnare someone in this field in an engaging way with with just a battlefield visit or just seeing a movie or a painting that they go hand in hand with how we consume and remember history today in the in the, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries i think if we you know kind of rewind our timeline and we could probably go all the way back to birth of a nation you know uh, griffin's silent movie based on the, the book the clansman um or gone with the wind and and those two pieces of of cinema had huge huge influences on uh, the wider culture and for some people that's as far as they ever got with civil war like that that those things helped define what the civil war was for them and for generations it did so which is in in many ways problematic um so there's sort of this dark side to the influence of pop culture too. Um, John, tell me a little bit about, you know, what are some of the dangers that are inherent in that? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, it's it's the classic, and and this is this is where some people, you know, kind of get reactionary against pop culture of like, oh, well, you know, everything is simplified into a fiction book like Killer Angels, Gods and Generals, Last Full Measure. Oh, it's been simplified into the movie Gettysburg. Uh, the the film Glory, uh, though Glory's, you know, definitely heads and shoulders above some of these others as well. Uh, but the idea that, you know, in order to translate to popular audiences or to be best-selling books or blockbuster movies, things get simplified a little bit because history is a very complicated thing that does not always, you know, merit easy condensation into 200 pages or 
an hour and a half at a theater, right? And and some people, you know, go very reactionary against that of like, oh, well, these aren't accurate. And there's there's kind of that line of like, okay, well, you know, they're not designed to be documentary films, right? Um, some things they get right, some things they don't get right. And that's okay for the type of media that they are. And there are there are a lot of great writers and historians and researchers who started out, you know, getting picked up, you know, uh, Dan's got a piece on the soundtrack of the movie Gettysburg in the book. And then we have actually two more pieces also related to the to the film. And, you know, is the film Gettysburg a perfect recreation of three days in July of 1863? No. Uh, is it is it a cultural touchstone for the ways that many people interact with the Battle of Gettysburg? Absolutely. Um, you know, although maybe the film would have you think that the only thing that happened on July 2nd was Little Round Top and Culp's Hill didn't exist and neither did approximately half of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, but man, I still turn that sucker on most battle anniversaries. I mean, you still got to do it, right? Uh, because it, it's it's that thing that, that hooks you. Uh, you know, I, I remember, um, you know, I... I may only be 26, but I still remember flipping that that two uh, that two VCR tape set in and being like, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta go change the VCR tape." Um, which now now I feel like I'm just kind of bullying you guys by being like, "VCR oh, tape." I remember when they didn't have sound in movies. <laughs> you know, I think John brings up two really good points, and and I I think both of them will tie into to my next thought which you know he talks about the, the the dark side which you mentioned of popular culture you know from everything you know using the movie Gettysburg as an example um you know you have those that are that that can become inspired by it to dig deeper to to go into the field in a more professional way you know whether being you know a teacher of history or a professor at the collegiate level or public historian or working in the museum field um, but then you have those that are like, well, you know, this is this didn't happen like this. And that uniform is Farby and they wouldn't have said it like this. And their accents and their beards are bad. And they they really poo poo the overall uh, effect of the movie. And I think in my own personal journey, I kind of was the same way that, you know, I absolutely fell in love with this, with, you know, a lot of the pop culture coming out in regards to the Civil War in the 1980s, you know, before John was even born, um, you know, and into the early 90s, also before John was born. Um, <laughs> um, and But then as I kind of entered this field and, and dug deeper and started learning more and researching more, I, you know, it became very negative um, to those things, you know, almost in a, from a an education standpoint, well, now I've got to reteach people that this was not how it was, and this is not what it would have looked like, and this is what was forgotten. Um, but, you know, to my to my my secondary point in, in John's comments is that I've kind of come full circle now and, and have come back to embrace it, because what I have seen in the public history field as it relates to the Civil War is we have lost many of those popular culture touchstones. Um, that brought an awareness and an understanding and at least some sort of foundation to the masses of what this period was all about. You know, so this year commemorates or celebrates the 30th anniversary of the movie Gettysburg. Um, you know, 15, 
16 years ago when I started as, as an interpreter at Gettysburg, you know, most every person that came on a, a, a public program on that battlefield had seen parts of or all of the movie Gettysburg. Um, and that is very rare now, uh, you know, 2021, 20, 22, 23, you know, few uh, or in some cases, some public programs, no one on those programs has seen the movie Gettysburg. So, you know, pop culture is being cyclical. And I think, um, as I mentioned, me coming back full, full, full swing on this, full circle on this, is it's a nice way to get folks back engaged with with the Civil War. And although not perfect, um, at least gets them interested uh, into this time period, which the ultimate goal of, of all of our positions is, is to transition these folks from, you know, casual observers and, and folks of casual interest to those that that want to become stewards of, of this story and these physical places and this material culture. Yeah. And, you know, when I worked at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania, uh, you know, people would come in the door and they'd be like, oh, I saw the movie Gettysburg. And now I want to go see where Stonewall Jackson died. And um, Stonewall Jackson wasn't in the movie Gettysburg, but, you know, <laughs> they came through the door and it got them there. And to me, like, that was an opportunity. And, you know, I would have colleagues who would roll their eyes like, oh, damn. And, and like, as pieces of history, some of those movies are terrible, you know. Um, but as pieces of art, and I think more importantly, as pieces of inspiration, they got someone through the door, and now it's up to me. I now have an opportunity that I would not have had as an interpreter to give them the story and help them explore it and, and learn more, which I think was, uh, you know, was vital. You know, I wouldn't have the chance to talk to those people if it wasn't for that movie. So, absolutely. Um, I think we're, we're sort of talking about, you know, maybe two different layers of of artifacts or texts here where, um, you know, within the Civil War community, there are these touchstones like Gettysburg, like gods and generals, like the killer angels. Um, and then there are sort of this other layer where these texts transcend the Civil War community. And that might be Ken Burns' Civil War, where all of America tuned in for a week to watch it. Uh, Gone with the Wind, where, you know, who who doesn't love Scarlet and, and Rat? Um, uh, even the Civil War Centennial, which was so interactive on, on such a wide scale for so many people. Um, tell me how you kind of... Um, you know, how do you view those really big moments that have influenced the cultural understanding of the Civil War? And has that been good or bad? Uh, John? I think I think that some of them have been more harmful than others. Um, Birth of a Nation stands out as one of those ones that, you know, very popular at its time and very much something that negatively impacted race relations in America and the ways in which people embraced, you know, lost cause portrayals uh, to, to misremember reconstruction and, and misremember the realities of the civil war. Uh, Gone with the wind is also something that throws around a couple lost cause tenants here and there, um, and and certainly is is something that had had huge influences um, on that. But then you get to other things where you get to you know I mentioned glory earlier. Glory again, not perfect, misrepresents a couple things here and there, but gets gets all of those broad strokes very right, uh, and is is something that that was a big popular movie that I think had a had a big positive influence 
in, you know, bringing to light new types of stories that had not gotten the type of attention throughout much of the 1900s. So, you know, they're all, they're all a mixed bag, except I, I, I do have trouble finding value in Birth of a Nation other than, you know, looking at it in a vacuum as an object of interest by being one of the first pseudo blockbuster films. You know, I try to look at it in that vacuum, but, you know, having, having sat through the entirety of it a couple of times, it's, it's hard to find his, it's, it's hard to find value in its portrayal of the civil war. As a communications guy, I'm, I'm, I always find that such a troubling movie because as a, as a piece of art, it was groundbreaking and, and the cinematography in it was incredible and the direction and the content is just so awful and, <laughs> and historically, and I think morally uh, problematic in such awful ways. So here you've got this piece of art that as a piece of art is really important in art history or film history, but as a piece of history, history, oh my gosh, it's just terrible, terrible. Uh, Dan, tell me kind of your your thoughts about these big touchstone, uh, large cultural artifacts or texts. You know, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that I've kind of returned back, you know, full cycle to the importance of these pieces within pop culture and the Civil War community. And even as using Birth of a Nation as an example of, of one that has that duality of a touchstone in pop culture, but one with a, a, a dark side, if you will, um, in, in regards to what we can we can glean from it. Um, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that all of these touchstones um, are important. And what, what even for what they are uh, in the era in which they come out and what they inspire or don't inspire in that period in which they, you know, they kind of burst into the scene and, and become popular. Um, you know, Gone with the Wind certainly um, portrays a very distinct type of perspective among the South and Confederates during the war, as well as damned Yankees. Um, I think you see the pendulum swing dramatically by the time we get to the 1980s and even in the 1970s when you're looking at, you know, um, Sam Waterston playing Lincoln and Gore Vidal's Lincoln to North and South and Blue and Gray TV miniseries to, um, you know, even Ken Burns is, is um, landmark documentary that, as you mentioned, the masses of this country tuned in for, not just your history buffs and your, your history teachers or professors. Um, but even even something as that has that duality as well. You know, is, you know, Ken Burns relies heavily on Shelby Foote and Shelby Foote becomes um, almost this iconic historian, if you will, of the Civil War following that documentary. But, you know, is Shelby Foote a true historian or is he a storyteller? You know, pick up any of his works and look for the footnotes. Um, look for the sources. You know, where is he getting this stuff? Um, you know, then at the same point in time, we have Glory come out, which, you know, uh, as I, I wanted to interrupt you so bad, John, you know, you said it, it's a lot of things right, except, you know, the direction in which they charge the port itself, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> well, I always had trouble just like uh, Ferris Bueller uh, being in the movie. It's like, oh. All I could see was Princess Bride the entire time. Uh, <laughs> you know, Elvis. Um, but, you know. Getting back to that, uh, this, this this kind of discussion, this thread, what concerns me now in the 21st century is I don't see those popular culture touchstones anymore. 
you know, no one is coming to, uh, you know, a Fredericksburg Spotsylvania Visitor Center or a Gettysburg Visitor Center or a Cedar Creek Visitor Center and saying, you know, I just watched, you know, 2008 or 2007's The Conspirator and I want to see, you know, this or I saw 2014's Copperhead and I want to see, you know, these these attempts at either direct Civil War stories or or stories in art that have a tangential relation to the Civil War are so below the radar now um, that I, I fear we're going to have a generation or two that's not going to have the same spark that the generation from the centennial era did and the generation from the 1980s and early 90s did that really catapulted a lot of people's interest into the Civil War uh, as a direct result to those pieces of popular culture. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what the last big thing was that really captured America's attention. I know that the there was a lot of hope that the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary, would do that, and it really didn't kind of gel the way the centennial had. And um, can either of you think of like you know what you would say like the last big pop culture moment for the Civil War was? We had we had Lincoln. I think I think Lincoln I think Lincoln did okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I, I think, yeah, I, I love that film. Me too. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe a little more political focus than most representations of the civil war in art, but it has, it has great, you know, siege scenes towards the beginning and the like. Um, so, I mean, I, I have trouble thinking, you know, you know, Dan, Dan mentioned Copperhead that didn't really go anywhere. Um, I don't think, uh, Will Smith's recent movie really went anywhere either. Right. Um, so I think I think it's got to be it's got to be Lincoln, right? Yeah, for, for blockbuster movies, I think I think it's Lincoln. Yeah, I, I would I totally would agree with you, John. I think that um, not only the movie, but you know, Currents Goodwin's book Team of Rivals, in which the movie's based upon, really entered popular culture. I mean, it was at every bookstore as a bestseller and and she was being interviewed on everything from you know morning news outlets to npr book talks to um you know even doing events throughout the the sesquicentennial um being you know, the main speaker one of which was was at gettysburg so uh, i i would tend to agree and what the other thing i i think of that though is i think about not just movies right because we've, we've talked very heavily on movies and i think that they've had the biggest impact in the popular cultural realm within the civil war community but if we start looking at other things that have been produced for the the masses in the civil war community you know at the same time you had glory and ken burns and gettysburg come out you had you know i, I can't remember the the name of them but they were very similar to those you know those 12 inch figures um, that were in all the gift shops, you know, styled after different uniforms and, you know, the, oh, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the small Britons figures and the plastic Civil War army men that had been around from the 60s. And, you know, there was so much other stuff in which you could engage in the popular culture of the Civil War. But I don't even see that um, anymore as well, um, you know, particularly in, you know, I see I see more tourist um, tourist places, if you will, places for tourists in which to shop and engage with Civil War pop culture, you know, for actual physical consumer goods, you know, they're 
they're pivoting to where markup's higher, you know, fudge and bottles of water and, you know, candy and, and, and things like that. So not only am I not seeing those big Civil War touchstones um, in movie format in the 21st century, but also with those other, you know, physical products um, in which not the general masses, but at least the Civil War masses would engage with as well. It just seems to me there was so much more during these other periods of, of important touchstones. As you talk about that, it, I'm just kind of thinking off the, the top of my head. If we think about the way just um, social media has really kind of funneled us into very narrow, specialized niches, the magazine industry is geared towards specialized niches, uh, you know, media in general, um, you know, there's a, a cable TV channel for anything anymore. When back in the Ken Burns days, there weren't yeah. that many TV channels. And so like, Media itself has just become so much specialized and marketing has become so much specialized that, you know, maybe some of these things you're talking about are just geared toward those hardcore Civil War communities and not that larger, um, which might be why there aren't those larger touchdowns. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's also relevant to all of these touchdowns that we've talked about tonight, those that ha- are, you know, that lived through those touchstones or were inspired by those touchstones, that demographic is, is aging out. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see, you know, I, I see a shift in engagement to where you would have the, that demographic, not only engaged in pop culture, but also going to these historic sites and buying books and reading and having a, a very well-versed knowledge of this time period. Um, I have seen that shift where that that age group, that demographic is is not leaving the hobby, but not as active as they used to be um, to now seeing those uh, more families, younger audiences, which is great. But the challenge of and I, perhaps I should not say challenge and opportunity is that they're coming with with no touchstone, with no previous engagement and therefore no previous foundational knowledge. It's. We saw the brown sign on the highway. It said Civil War Battlefield. The kids have been in the car five hours. We want to get them out of the car. You know, so, you know, (laughs) yeah, so that's an opportunity. It's definitely an opportunity for us in the public history field. Right. But, you know, we only have them for that that limited. That time that they're there, the 45 minutes, the three hours, that time they're there is the spark that we generate enough in that limited window to keep them going when they leave or, you know, the days of when you could turn on, you know, the discovery channel or the history channel. And there were always syndicated reruns of civil war journal that would carry you through to the next book you got or the next battlefield trip. Are those popular culture touchstones that are absent? Is that going to be detrimental to the, the, the new demographics that are engaging in this era of history? Mm-hmm. I think about you know the content, the digital content, which is something you brought up earlier. Like the American Battlefield Trust creates a tremendous amount of digital content that is something that a lot of folks in the community engage with. How much does it break out of the community? Again, kind of going back to that notion of, of being in these niches. Um, now, Dan, I know, and and John, this is kind of a question for you, having come along after us. 
Um, Dan and I are of a certain age and I'm of a more certain age than Dan is. Uh, but, you know, Dan, once upon a time, I know that you would uh, you have the CDs in the car that were playing Civil War music and you've got your action figure on the bookshelf and you're drinking from a Civil War glass and you've got Civil War art on the walls. And I I would immerse myself. Yeah, look at that. Very good. He's the cleanest Confederate I have ever seen. <laughs> He's propping uh, up my light. <laughs> Uh, and I would sort of bathe myself in Civil War stuff that way as well. John, did you ever do that kind of stuff? Did you bathe in the Civil War like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think to a lesser extent, you know, I had I had a poster, you know, from the battlefield of Gettysburg, you know, with the very couple of the sites on it. I had the poster of that hanging up um, behind me. That that painting there, you know, that is that that's a wartime that's a wartime painting by Frederick Church. You know, he he paints it in the aftermath of Fort Sumter, and it's you know kind of a a flaming sunset sky. You know, that's that's showing the American flag, right? So you know, it's not quite pop culture. It's 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 wartime culture there, but you know, I'm, I'm still. But I guess looking back, you know, I had I had some of the kitschier stuff. As a, as a kid, so it was it was around, you know. Like, certainly, Dan and I have spent a lot of time, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, chatting about or rewatching the movie Gettysburg. Uh, so that that stuck around a bit for me as well. Um, so what's the kitschiest thing you had, Dan? I'll ask you this too. What's what, what do you think the kitschiest thing is? You start, had? start start with Dan there, and okay. And I, the kit the kitschiest thing I had to give you guys time to think. I have a wine stopper that is shaped like Stonewall Jackson, which is doubly ironic because he didn't drink, you know, but he's going to be stopping up my bottle. There he stands like a stone wall, keeping that wine in the bottle. Are you sure it doesn't spill out? I mean, he's missing one arm. That's definitely uh, yeah, that's right. He's only got one arm to hold him down. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's that good. <laughs> yeah. I, wow. The kitschiest thing. I mean, just even looking around at my bookshelves here, just but you have like two and a half years or three years of zoom meetings so you have you have curated your bookshelf so it looks distinguished and important so i I would think that you have probably moved the kitsch off the shelves you know i've got i've got a good display of it i've got uh you know i want to say i was really into um like action figures as a kid so any of that kind of stuff so i think one of my kitschiest things was and and um Thank the Lord my father has passed almost 10 years ago, so you won't hear this story. But one of our first trips to Gettysburg, he got me this plastic cannon, which I still have on my shelf somewhere. And it had these little plastic, you know, nubs that were supposed to be 10-pound parrot shells. And you'd put it down the barrel and you would, you know, pull the spring-loaded cascabel back and let it go. And it would, you know, fire it. And I think the first night in the hotel that we had then, it was the, uh, it was Larson's Hotel. Uh, that we were at. I'll never forget that. On the floor, I had some of those Britain's figures, and I played the the crap out of that thing till the spring broke. Um, and I you never told mom and dad because we were, you know, we were a lower lower working class family. So a purchase like that was a big purchase. So you know, I had to pull the little cascabel back and then flick it forward for it to fire. Um, and, and then after that trip, I really didn't play with it much because you know I broke it. But um, you know, that's probably the the kitschiest thing I have. I have a lot of the Plastic Civil War figures. I have a lot of those, you know, Britons rubber figures. Um, you know, some of these twelve-inch figures. Um, and then, of course, as you get older and your your taste change, it moved into kitschy Civil War uh, beer glasses and shot glasses. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I can uh, sit here and 
have a shot from a Civil War Trails uh, shot glass or my Schreiber Saloon shot glass from Gettysburg, you know. So those are those are I would say probably the kitschier things or are the toys, the, the, the children's ephemera, if you will, of, of Civil War pop culture. All right, John. Let's, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you bought me time because I was looking around and, you know, my bookshelves mostly have like original Civil War artifacts on it now. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's got to be, you know, you guys remember Boyd's Bears when it was still in Gettysburg? Oh yeah. So so Boyd's Bears, you know, big big like teddy bear company used to used to own this big big barn outside of Gettysburg, uh, and they made a bear that had its own little like you know, you know artillery shell jacket on little little teddy, you know full Union uniform. Yeah, I, I got one of those suckers upstairs for sure. Awesome, awesome, very good. I mean, it's it's impossible. That's an impossible question. I don't know about for you, John, but like I'm even looking at my desk. Like who has a flash drive that's abraham lincoln okay I mean, wow, like, that is uh that's a lot like, right there that's that's a lot i mean like i mean to that i mean that's pretty kitsch you that's know pretty i mean like it, it's hard to pick that's a really difficult question <laughs> so uh so let's do a quick little round robin about some of our um favorites we'll start with movies uh best and worst civil war movie and why all right, John, as you finish your drink, that gave you a pause there to think about. We'll let you go. That's the pause that refreshes. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I think I, I think I give I give best to glory for trying to do something that other, you know, it's I, I'm not going to say that the, the 54th Massachusetts has ever been an untold story of the Civil War. Right. But for them to, you know, dedicate a, a film to something like that rather than something like, oh, well, you know, you make a movie about the Battle of Gettysburg at that time, obviously it's going to sell, right? Um, so I, I think that that Glory kind of kind of took that and pointed things in another direction. And so I, I think I give I think I give Glory best. And, you know, despite me being able to look at, at the film Gettysburg with rose tinted glasses, I cannot do the same for Gods and Generals. <laughs> Um, in general, on, is just over sentimentalized. No, shock, on, man. man, like you that, know, that I, is, that's Bud Wabison's masterpiece. Come on, man. Well, but like the book is okay. Uh, like yeah. the the book, Gods and Generals, you know, is fine. Um, but I have, I have, again, you know, we were talking about how you know we try to find value in the things, and and that's something to to note, right? Like. I know we focused a lot about movies, but we cover like other things in the book too that aren't just movies. Like we got video games, we got board games, we got. Oh, songs. we're gonna we're gonna get to them in a okay. second. I promise. But but the other the other idea being like this isn't just here's glory. Here's all the things that are right. Here's all the things that are wrong. Here's Gettysburg. Here's the things that are right. Here's the things that are wrong. That's that's not what we're doing in the edited volumes here. Um, but yes, yeah, so I I have trouble. I, I have I have trouble with gods and generals, man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Stephen Lang's portrayal of Jackson was spot on. I mean, the rest of the movie I thought was dreadful, but I actually thought he did a good job of that. Yeah. Uh, Dan, best and worst. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to kind of go similar to what John was talking about, um, in which I'm going to go with best as the movie Andersonville. Um, you know, I, I definitely. I, I definitely, yeah, deep cut. I would definitely, I mean, I would love to put Gettysburg up there. You know, that'll always be a touchdown for me. But, you know, similarly to what John was saying is that, um, 
you know, Andersonville depicts a part of, of the Civil War that is, is not much discussed, both in academia and within popular culture, and that's the prisoner of war experience. Um, so, you know, that that was one of those 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 really good touchstones, one of those good movies for me that that helps expand that story, right? So in the 21st century and within the last decade, we're all about in the history field expanding the stories and looking for new stories and sharing new stories. And, and I think Anderson Bill does that within the Civil War popular culture. Worst movie, I've got to say, um, I want to I want to say it's I want to believe it was called The Gray Ghost. Um, and well, there's it, a TV show about it. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a TV show about it, but there was a really terrible movie um, called Gray Ghost. And it was how the, the, these Union and Confederates were fighting each other. And um, all of a sudden, like, you know, a zombie outbreak occurred and the Union and Confederates had to join forces and they had to make silver bullets. They had to cast silver bullets and defend this gold wagon. I mean, it was just it's so far fetched. Like, I, I'll take Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Yeah, right. Uh, he was about to say, "Can I change my best movie to that one?" To Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer, where the Battle of Gettysburg oh. was because of silver. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's not Grey Ghost. It's the Grey Knight. And what was so disappointing about it is it came out the same year as Gettysburg, right? So you know, oh man, I'm so I'm 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 on the Civil War train right now, um, with with all of these these guys and and. The worst part about it is it has this huge star-studded cast. Uh, among them, Martin Sheen, uh, you know, is playing a Confederate officer. Corbin, Corbin Burnson is in there. You know, like Ray Watt, like all of these. Billy Bob Thornton's in this movie. David Arquette. So like Matt LeBlanc, like all of these huge stars are in this movie, right? And it comes out the same year as Gettysburg. And I'm like, oh, this is... Yes, Martin Sheen's a Confederate again. This is going to be awesome. And yeah, next thing it was was you know these guys fighting off Civil War soldier zombies. It was horrible. It's horrible. So worst worst Civil War movie of all time. Well, it sounds so bad that it would be good. I don't, you know, except that it's so bad, it's bad. Yeah, I owned it on DVD for a number of years, and every now and again I'd get it out and watch it. <laughs> even Martin so, Sheen couldn't save that one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, so some would say he couldn't even save Gettysburg. But uh <laughs> so I think like if if I'm gonna pull a technicality and I'm gonna say Ken Burns Civil War, because it says a film by Ken Burns. So that's gonna be my favorite. And of course had had huge impact. It's just beautiful to watch. I love the music. Um you know, I, the the narrations were just so effective. So I thought it just did a lot to to bring the Civil War. As far as worst, um, I don't know. I might go with Gods and Jacksons. Um, as much as I like Stephen Lang's performance, and I I think it is superior um, of all the Civil War performances. I think his as Jackson is the best. But there's so much else about that movie that is so soaked in magnolias and moonlight that it's just. Uh, it's tough to tough to get through. Civil War in real time. That's what I always call it. It was just so slow paced. So um you're gonna add something there, Dan? Look like you wanted to. I was chime gonna, in. Yeah, I was gonna, you know, I was gonna say that. I mean, how can you how can you give that movie such a bad rating when you get to watch Dennis Fry tell Joshua Chamberlain that it's time to pull off the battlefield? <laughs> you know, or to see Gabor Borat, you know, waving off the defeated federal Irish at Marie's Heights. I mean, there's yeah. so many. Civil War luminaries in that film, you know, some of these historians that were also touchstones themselves. 
True. That, that, yeah, there was that whole generation of, of Civil War rock stars. Civil War rock stars, and they were, yeah. you know, they were playing it out in the, in these movies. So it was like a two for one. You know, how many historians could you identify in this movie? Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, so let's shift to books. Um, favorite Civil War book. It could be fiction or nonfiction. Let's go with fiction. Let's go with let's go with fiction. I'm going to go with uh, pretty much, and and it could be a collection of, but anything Ambrose Bierce. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I think he was really. I think for a long time it was very in vogue to select him from the fiction pile, um, but it kind of faded away. I would say probably within the last twenty years. Um, so anything Bierce is good, particularly at, at an occurrence at Owl Creek Ridge. And then therefore, um, perhaps one of my, there's a couple different adaptations of that. Um, so also some of my favorite cinema has been some of the adaptations of that. So favorite fiction writer for sure, Bierce, but because of, you know, the contemporary, uh, experience of Bierce, I think it, it ties in well. Okay. Okay. A great Twilight Zone episode based on uh, episode of uh, Owl Creek Bridge. Yeah. Yes. John, favorite Civil War fiction? Yeah. Well, he, he stole my he stole my beer, so I'm 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 frantically uh, eyeballing through my through my bookshelves. But you know, beers beers is kind of that 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 fascinating blend of you know fiction, but like lived fiction, right? Where where you can yeah. tell that a lot of the stuff that's making its way into the stories is 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 coming from his served experience and then of course you know he's such a he's such a mysterious figure himself basically just vanishing um you know himself um i mean again again you know kind of in that in that almost stephen crane stephen crane's not quite lived experience um but you know i think that's that's a classic that's a classic fiction that's hard to beat i think Everyone should reread Red Badge if they have if they've read it. Yeah. Go reread it. If you haven't, go read it. It's a, just a wonderful, wonderful book. So I think uh, my choice is going to be Killer Angels. I think it's just a lovely book, well written. Uh, a lot of people knock it because it's uh, fiction, but uh, and he does take a few liberties. But uh, I think it's just a beautiful book that uh, holds up well to this day. So. Uh, is there a, like a creative nonfiction writer that you guys particularly like? Um, you know, and and you know, Dan, you mentioned earlier Doris Kearns Goodwin, who's just straight up nonfiction. Um, you know, I think James McPherson's Red Badge, or I mean, uh, uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, kind of falls in that same category. Uh, but you know, then you sort of get into like the Bruce Cantons, the Shelby Foots. Uh, any anybody there jump out at you? Well, I would put Shelby Foot in the fiction category. Um, <laughs> and I know that's gonna that's gonna give me some some hate email, but uh, you know when it, it it would be irresponsible to say that you know popular culture and civil war community that has this dark side of people saying you know this is inaccurate the, the uniforms are farby the beards are fake but not then look at something like Ken Burns and Shelby Foot and then look at his re, his research and writing you know. Where does a lot of these sources come from? Is he a storyteller? Is he a historian? You know, um, but um, creative, creative nonfiction writer. Wow, that is uh, man. What I like is not creative. I, you know, when John, when we started this coming full circle, John was like, "Who gets into the Civil War and picks up Coddington and loves it?" And that's <laughs> this 
right here. Like I, you know, I absolutely love that experience. Well, so. but you didn't you didn't start with Coddington because you weren't reading Coddington at age five, I assume. That's that that is true. Um I I, I can actually you tell might, you you might have been chewing on Coddington. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so my you know, my creative nonfiction authors, um you know, are, are could be considered very dry. Um, but give me a second. Let me think all about right, it. All right, we're good. We're good. Well, here, I'll, I'll I'll buy you some time, Dan. Uh, Tony Horowitz. I think that. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That I I was I was racking my brain. I'm like, what does creative nonfiction mean? What is what is that like? Where where do you, where does that fit? Confederates in the attic. Um, his John Brown book you know yeah. the, his 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 most recent and final books yeah i i think that's that's got to be that that's got to be creative nonfiction, right yeah confederates in the attic is just an outstanding book yeah i and i think john even touches on something by by calling out horowitz which i can i love your your assessment there john i completely agree with you is talking about popular history and popular historians within the field of the civil war community and civil war studies you know, there are those authors in the history field and abroad that they are, you know, what we call popular historians. They write very human interest, narrative driven books that are not necessarily for your your deep researcher or your your content expert. But these are the type of of gateway type books on those particular topics. So, um, you know, you look at like a Kearns Goodwin, for example, or even I would consider a Jim McPherson. Um, a popular Civil War historian. So uh, I'm going to follow up with that. You've inspired me, John, um, that my creative non, non-fiction writer, I I'm going to say William C. Davis. Um, Davis is one of those human interests, narrative driven, um, and he ties into so many other areas of, of the Civil War rock star within the popular culture community of the Civil War, you know, from all the documentaries and Civil War Journal and, you know, um, the Time Life series, he wrote a number of those Time Life Civil War series, which was also that, you know, that's a popular Civil War uh, culture type book, you know, the, the Mail Away Civil War Time Life series. So I'm going to go with William C. Davis. Yeah, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be talking about Bruce Catton as kind of what got them hooked, or particularly around the centennial. Um, I love Shelby Foote as a writer, just a fantastic writer. But I'm going to go with Confederates in the Attic as my choice. It's just it's one of my absolute favorite books. It's fantastic. All right, so how about music? Is there a song, a band, some sort of musical act that uh, that, that really resonates with you? Gettysburg soundtrack, hands down. Um, as a musician, I, I, I love to hate it. You know, as a young kid, that when I got into it, I mean, I, and, and I got a great essay in the book. Uh, in there that both of you so lovingly uh, went through and, and, and made it appear its best. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, gosh, we got that thing on. It was called Cassettes, John. And um, it was this piece of plastic that you... Yeah, you got your little pencil to rewind it? Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, we bought that. We bought that. The That was probably our second or third trip down there um, when the, the movie was filming and it had come out and the soundtrack was on cassette. And that, back then, there there was no... 15 north out of Gettysburg up to the turnpike so you know it was the old way going to 30 from Ohio and it was like a six and a half hour drive back then and so I, I burned the heck out of that thing um on the way home after we bought it but you know in, then once I got into music and went to music school and became a music teacher and realized oh well 
that entire soundtrack is played on a synthesizer. There's literally one person playing every single part, and it's horrible MIDI uh, files that are used. And it, you know, those are the people as a real musician that you come to loathe because they they put real musicians out of work. Um, but that soundtrack, hands down, is such a huge touchdown for me. I really don't care um, that it's not real musicians. Um, they, you know, a couple of uh, composition uh, companies, music companies have put out, you know, real versions of the soundtrack for, for middle school and high school. And, and it just sounds cool um, because you you just come to hear this, this synthetic version of these instruments. So uh, very long-winded answer to saying Gettysburg soundtrack, hands down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the Gettysburg soundtrack is is definitely a touchstone. Um, I was also, you know, debating the Ken Burns soundtrack, right? Um, but, you know, there's also a lot of great modern recordings of wartime songs, right? Um, some of some of my favorite, and this, this is, Pete Seeger did a couple albums of, of yeah. re-recording of, of original Civil War music, you know, just that just that that folk singer and i mean because of his his own like social and political activism like the songs that he picks you know he, you you know you know that he's understanding the message behind them because he's seeing them as the same message that he's he's putting in his own protest music you know throughout i i think that's just such an interesting layer um to add to you know original wartime music and and just just the great american folk music tradition i'll i'll yeah. give a little plug there for ashokan farewell from the uh, ken burns soundtrack it's a song anytime i hear i never turn it off and it's just a, a lovely uh, lovely song uh, and then um uh i love steve earl's dixieland which oh, uh yeah. it's it's a you know basically a song about buster kill rain from the uh, killer angels and uh just man those were great great tunes great great tune uh toe tapper for sure so. i'll share one quick story with you um you know chris so graciously put put this up on the, our facebook page a number of months ago you know i'm a huge southern rock guy leonard skinner is the greatest band of any genre of all time um but i've really over the last couple of years you know kind of branched out you know who were their influences who else were playing at the same time and for our listeners, perhaps many of you have heard of the Outlaws, Green Grass and High Tides Forever. But one of the founding members of the Outlaws is a guy by the name of Henry Paul. And um, Henry Paul left the Outlaws after their third album. And um, he went on to form the Henry Paul Band. But um, in 1986, the original Outlaws came back together again and, and did an album. They cut it out in Los Angeles, which was their first mistake, a Southern rock band going out to L.A. to record. Uh, but they cut this album out, and um, on the album is a song called Cold Harbor, and it's about the fighting in June of 64. And uh, so this this past summer, back in uh, just about a month ago, up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, Henry Paul, the, the only surviving original member from the Outlaws, they've all passed, and his reconstituted band that he calls the Outlaws came to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, just north of Gettysburg. I'm like, well, I'm going. I mean, you know, open them up for him is Artemis Pyle, which was the second drummer for Skinner. And, and uh, so saw him again. So anyway, so Henry Paul and the reconstituted Outlaws, they played about an hour and a half of like really rocking music. And they all get out the acoustic guitars and uh, they come out on stage. Well, we're going to slow things down for you. And he, he starts uh, starts talking about this next song. You know, we went out to L.A. and. 
I'm like third row. I didn't even let the guy finish. I was like Cold Harbor. Like I'm yelling that out. And sure enough, they played Cold Harbor. And everyone in the audience was just looking at me like, oh, that guy know that song. We've never heard that before. <laughs> but, you know, for Henry Paul, he's a huge Civil War enthusiast. And if you look at a lot of his songs he wrote in his solo career, um, you know, Henry Paul band, he formed a country band in the early 90s whose name escapes me at the moment, but they're all, you want to talk about Civil War pop culture and its influence on people. Um, absolutely. So Cold Harbor, there it is. Uh, yeah. Right after the Gettysburg soundtrack. Charlie Watts, the drummer for the Rolling Stones, was a huge, huge Civil War fan. He had a, a giant collection of Civil War memorabilia uh, before he passed away. Like Phil Collins with the Alamo. Huge collection yeah. of, of Alamo-related stuff. I guess when you got disposable income. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that Phil Collins bought the Alamo's basement, which is why it wasn't there for Pee Wee Herman. To yeah. so, um, so the book also talks about other ways, uh, other examples of pop culture. We've got uh, gaming, uh, video gaming, Civil War art, uh, you know, reenactments. Um, what other favorite way do you each have to kind of interact with the Civil War on a sort of arts entertainment level? Sure, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, you know, for many years, like I said, you know, the 90s, particularly anything more Kunstler, I was all about. So, you know, the number of of, of uh, posters that I have, it wasn't, you know, as a, as a teenager able to afford prints uh, during that time period. But, you know, Kunstler definitely, and then Troy Oni in the, the early, late 90s, early 2000s had huge impact. Um, so, you know, for many, many years until bookcases replaced wall space, you know, I engaged in Civil War pop culture with a lot of art. Um, living history and reenacting did that as well um, at different stages, and, you know, and went from the the general mainstream, uh, what I like to call hoot and shoot, just go out and burn black powder to to doing more uh, research based uh, living history events with with organizations that are similarly minded to do their research. Um, so I've interacted that way as well, and then certainly music. Um, not just, you know, as we we talked a little bit about um, music related to or of the Civil War, but, you know, those songs that have been written in the 20th and 21st centuries uh, about the Civil War, but not necessarily contemporary or period related music is definitely another way. And then I would say, lastly, um, twofold um, board games as a kid. Uh, yeah, I can remember that Civil War trivia game um, that was like a board game and you advanced your you know, you're, you're around the board for Civil War trivia. And then um, the Avon Hill Gettysburg uh, game, that was huge. And then, you know, all of those plastic toy soldiers, toy soldiers and toy cannons, um, not much anymore, but I, I can envision one day having a, a child of my own and laying on the floor, a boy or a girl, having my plastic Irish brigade attack uh, some stone plastic wall with uh, you know Confederate soldiers behind it. So we we have that in my house. That happens here. <laughs> John, how about you? Uh, I think I think I'll give it to the the board gaming, the war gaming, and the video gaming. You know, all in kind of various levels, right? I'm I'm staring at my copy of Battle Cry. Um, I recently backed on Kickstarter a board game about the Mexican-American War. Very excited about that one. I'll share you the link later because I think you'll like it. Um, you know, or or the miniature the miniature war gaming. You know, which is probably just an evolution of like you guys said. You know, playing with the the plastic figures. 
Uh, and then, you know, there's, there's a, and we've got a little like summary article of it in the book too. You know, there's, there's a, there's a moderate civil war video game scene out there. I mean, I, I, I remember playing the history channels, official civil war game, maybe 15 years ago. Now that thing was God awful. I'm pretty sure they put a Gatling gun on little round top. If I remember correctly, uh, that was pretty bad, but there's, there's, uh, there's some, strategy level ones and other things that are that are fairly recent come out within the last couple of years and then talk we were talking about kind of cultural touchstones and you know one thing that that i found really interesting i never did get around to writing a blog post on it just because life got in the way uh and i i'm several years late to it right but i i uh, i recently did a playthrough of red dead redemption 2 uh, now that's set in a in a fictionalized American West, you know, decades after the Civil War. Uh, but I couldn't I couldn't help but think about all of the ways that the writers and designers for the game considered the American Civil War in it. You know, in in one part you're in basically a, a fictionalized Louisiana esque landscape, and there's there's a big old Confederate monument right in the center of the town circle, and there's there's the the, the dueling, you know, family feuds of plantation families that had, that never really recovered from the Civil War. Um, there are, you know, the pseudo KKK going around. There are there are gangs wearing Confederate uniforms perpetuating violence. There are, you know, wounded veterans who had amputations, you know, begging for change. Uh, and so, you know, well, it's not really a civil war video game. I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a moderate sized cultural touchstone that has sold tens of millions of copies, whether on PCs or consoles. Uh, and I think it really still engages with the civil war. So that's kind of the recent one. I was late to it, uh, but I, I really enjoyed, you know, going through and occasionally having those moments of like, wait a second, you know, this is, this is talking about the legacy of slavery. This is talking about, you know, the, the Civil War's impact on the West, which I know several people in ECW are always kind of uh, harping to the rest of us about, about like, hey, look, there's a West. Um, <laughs> well, John, you may you may have been a little late to that one, but you're a lot late to probably one of Chris and I's favorite Civil War uh, electronic games or computer games, Sid Meier's. Oh, yeah, yeah. You did yeah. not play Sid Meier's Gettysburg or Antietam. Or the demo of, of South Mountain, you missed out, man. I I think I I think I had that. I think I had that somewhere. I'd have to I'd have to dig through a stack of you know CDs somewhere. You know, those were the days where you had to go to MS DOS and type in code to launch your game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the pixelation. the pixelation! Yeah. Oh, the pixelation! Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, John, I hope that you write that blog post. That would be fantastic. It's it's, it's been it is. I am staring at a sticky note on my wall. That says it says like, hey, you should get back to this thing. Um, it's there's a lot of sticky notes on that, um, but it, you know how it goes. I do, I do. So I'll put in a plug for um, second South Carolina string band, Bobby Horton. I used to love those uh, CDs. Uh, well, Bobby Kincaid, you know, just, you know, I'd go to a battlefield and I'd pop one in the, in the CD player in the car to kind of soak it in as I was driving around and be in the mood. And, and just, I used to love to, to listen to those guys. And um, it was really cool. The first time I saw the second South Carolina string band live and they were just absolutely, absolutely. electric, yeah. just fantastic, fantastic. And uh, fortunate to, uh, over the years have become friends with Joe Ewers, their banjo player, and uh, just a you know just a great guy to, to chat with. So it's kind of neat. And uh, 
So here, and then maybe this ties back to the kitsch. So the Civil War art that you mentioned, Dan, one of yeah. my goals used to be to tell the biography of Stonewall Jackson in Civil War art. So I wasn't buying like all of the Civil War Jackson stuff because there's just a, an avalanche of it. But like, what are key moments in his life that were portrayed in um, in canvas by different artists? And I was buying up prints and there's just a couple still that I would need to get, but I don't have wall space for it anymore. So <laughs> I sort of gave up on that one. But, yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a great essay in the book that talks about the Civil War art boom and bust and how, you know, there was Civil War art on everything Civil War related for a long time. And that was, you know, so recognizable and there was such a huge market for it. And that's evaporated. Um, when I was in Seattle, kind of hanging out with Richard Heisler from Civil War Seattle, uh, he told me that he was an art student and that's what he wanted to do for a living. And so I got him to actually write that essay based on his own personal experience and uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Um, John, let me kind of ask you to bring it back to the book to wrap us up here. Um, as folks pick up pop culture, Civil War and pop culture, um, you know, what do you hope they're going to take away from this uh, curation of essays? Yeah, you know, like I was saying earlier, this isn't just kind of a, a, a list of like, you know, here's your favorite movie or song and why it's bad, right? That's that's not that's not what we're doing. There's a little bit of stuff here and there about about things, you know, the the myths that it may have perpetuated in culture and the impacts it had. Uh, but really, you know, everything everything in here is taking a look at, you know, a book, a song. Um, works of art, whether that's film, television, or, you know, a, a physical media in, in the form of art, and, and looking at it and, and seeing what its own independent value is and what it has to say about the Civil War and about the ways that we choose to remember the Civil War. And that's a little different for everything, right? Um, but I, I think that, you know, in each of those things, we find we find value in whatever that piece of popular culture is. Uh, and and sometimes it's you know that really unique perspective, like the the complicated ways in which we look back on birth of a nation. Very good, very good. It's and and there are some fantastic essays um, that are original yeah. to this book that uh, that didn't appear as blog posts or anything. You know, we've got John Kosky talking about the Confederate flag in pop culture. I mean, boy, talk about an A-lister there. Uh, yeah. Gary Adelman talking about Civil War photography. That's right up his bailiwick, as folks know. I mean, so we got some really great pieces in here that are original to this book that uh, explore some pretty fascinating topics as well. I'm sure I'll, I'm, you know, I don't want to try to list off everybody. I'll forget folks for sure but uh, uh dan any final words of wisdom from you yeah i think it's a you know it's a really fun enjoyable read um you know if you're one who's not appreciative of reading edwin coddington uh on a daily basis or you know some other um epic tome on strategy and tactics this is definitely a nice change of pace um and i think a lot of folks will be surprised just how far flung pop culture and civil war permeated into society. Um, everything from Birth of a Nation through, you know, um, David Kincaid and Bobby Horton to um, Mort Kunstler to the movies Gettysburg and Gods and Generals to, you know, Civil War beer glasses and shot glasses. Um, college football mascots. Yeah, mascots. has got a great essay in there. Yeah, so uh, it's definitely a fun read. It's an illuminating read. It, it, it will definitely... Um, for many, um, be one of those those feel good type books where you're reading about something that 
that perhaps you yourself have interacted with uh, in pop culture and in civil war, or it is a touchstone for you as well. Um, so, I, you know, I highly recommend uh, everyone to, to pick up this latest volume uh, from the Emerging Civil War 10th Anniversary Series. And uh, uh, John and Chris here have done just a, an outstanding job curating these essays. And uh, let's face it, these books look great together on a bookshelf. The spines are awesome. Our design team at Savas Baby does just an amazing job with it. Um, as you can see behind me, I'm a huge book guy. And sometimes you just like the appearance of some really good looking spines on your shelf. So um, if you've got another couple volumes in the series so far, you do not want to miss this one. Uh, get it on that shelf and pull it out when you're looking for something a little lighter to read. Excellent. So, Dan, thanks for being with us. John, thanks for being with us. The book is Civil War and Pop Culture from Savas Beatty as part of the Emerging Civil War 10th Anniversary Series, co-edited by the fabulous John Tracy there. Excellent work, John. Congratulations. So, John, Dan, thanks so much. I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War podcast. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. And as we wrap up, let me thank our producer, Edward Alexander, our associate producer, Sarah K. Byerly, and our sound engineer, Jackson Mikowski. They're the folks behind the scenes that are bringing the Emerging Civil War podcast to you. Also, thanks to the Second South Carolina String Band. You can find them on Facebook at Second South Carolina String Band. They provide our theme music, and they are still going after all these years. At least online, you can find them there uh, on YouTube and on Facebook. And don't forget to join us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. More than 30 historians providing free content with a bunch of different writing styles, interests, areas, backgrounds. Big conversation about America's defining event, and we want you part of that conversation. So join us at EmergingCivilWar.com. If you like what you hear on the Emerging Civil War podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, share, like, tell your friends all about it, and tune in for more great conversations with some of today's emerging voices in the field. On behalf of John Tracy and Dan Welch, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War podcast. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs> <laughs>